Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Herb Carter, Grace Lee, and Laura Arahuo from the Siemens Westinghouse Competition in Math, Science, and Technology. Also, we'll find out what our largest planet is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. <laughs> uh, what do you think about putting ozone into your blood? Ozone into my blood? Yeah. Uh, I think it would probably uh, be radical. Radical. In fact, it would be, and uh, it would be bad for you. Oh, is that right? Because uh, a lot of the, uh, the plaques and uh, lipids associated with uh, arterial hardening are due to uh, a radical oxidation of uh, lipids in your blood. I see. So why, pray tell, what I even think of putting ozone in my blood? Uh, you wouldn't, but it turns out that your immune system might be doing that as part of its defense mechanism. Oh, I oxidizing, see. Oxidizing uh, stuff they don't want, but uh. at the same time also uh, turning on to these uh, LDLs, these low-density lipids that could harden and uh, accumulate inside your uh, arteries. I see. So what uh, turns out to be a very uh, specific effect for trying to... Uh, maybe kill some microorganisms or get rid of stuff? Possibly. Uh, in general, the, uh, the cardiovascular disease is based with these inflammatory responses, and that means that a lot of times there's an oxidation effect going on. And what researchers at Scripps University have identified is that ozone seems to be uh, one of the major players in this oxidation process. Ah, that's, that's quite fascinating. So uh, it's just converted from oxygen, I imagine. In, uh, Probably, or some like other uh, yeah. uh, activated form of, of oxygen. Are, are people trying to target then this ozone now in terms of trying to prevent arterial heart? hardening, arthrosclerosis, that kind of stuff? Instead, what they're trying to do is um, recognize some of the, um, the side products that are given off when ozone oxidizes lipids, and that could be detected in the blood. I see. So that then you could find out uh, these are precursors for possible uh, artery hardening or you know accumulation of plaque inside your uh, arteries. So if people don't want to have their arteries hardened any further than they need to be? Just go to our favorite journal, oh. Science. Well, so much for the uh, shock of ozone to the system. Mm. How about the shock of the solar wind to voyaging spacecraft? Shock of the solar wind. It must burn, huh? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it, it does burn. It does help to carry particles out of the solar system, and it actually defines much of what is the solar system, is the solar wind. So uh, Voyager, which is our favorite uh, man-made spacecraft, which keeps blowing out into space. Isn't it uh, somewhere around Pluto or beyond now? Uh, apparently, they say it may have passed into the outer regions of the solar system into interstellar space at this point. Interstellar space? Yes. <laughs> wow. Never been there, and probably don't want to do that either. I think it's probably not uh, on a list of vacation spots uh, on orbits or anything. <laughs> but uh, this particular Voyager spacecraft uh, has uh, passed into interstellar space, and the reason they think this is because it's passed beyond what's called the heliopause, mm -hmm. which is the region where the solar wind starts to die down and blow a little more softly. At this particular region, there's sort of a uh, shock wave that's formed between when it, you have really fast solar winds going to slow stellar winds. Mm -hmm. It's at that shock zone that they think they've detected a transition mm -hmm. in uh, high energy and low energy particles. So basically they're seeing a drop in all of these particles I that see. suggest that all of a sudden the solar wind is much less uh, prominent uh -huh. and suggesting that now Voyager is on its way out of the solar system into bigger and greater things hmm. yet to come. Without the wind blowing on it. <laughs> Without the wind blowing on it. So it's operating purely on momentum and, and free will, I think. <laughs> It has a choice. It has a choice, as we've learned from really bad science fiction movies that are overhyped, it seems. <laughs> well, uh, I reloaded it four times, you know. <laughs> I revolved it about 500 times. <laughs> oh, Lord. So this is coming on in uh, the recent issue of Nature. Stop the pain, Charles. Stop the pain. <laughs> I would if I could, but I can't, so I shan't. <laughs> just, just blow me out of my mind. What's, what's causing you pain this week, my good friend? Things are just too perfect. Things are too perfect. Yeah. Well, that's always been a problem. I think uh, most people find. But uh, the pain I'm talking about is real physical pain, uh, which I do not have. But uh, scientists have found some drugs which could uh, uh, alleviate these these tensions. Oh, is that right? Yes, drugs which could. Uh, which would not be as as addictive as, say, morphine. And um, what what this researcher, uh, neuroscientist George Milzenich, is um, he's uh, extracting drugs from uh, the venom of snails, sea snails, and it turns out it has a potency about a thousand times stronger than morphine. And this seems to help people with uh, interminable pain. Wow, it's incredible, in fact. Wow. Yeah. So is it shutting off these uh, fibers or shutting off uh, just the pain response overall? What's going on? It's not really clear yet. Clear wow, enough. so they've just been able to stop the pain. Yeah, stop the pain. <laughs> no pain, no gain. Right, but, but the so funny thing no about gain. this is uh, there's a tabloid at the National Examiner which had a story about six years ago which said something like, miracle pain cure, deadly snail, snail venom. Oh, wow. Now it's true. Now it's true. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always said that the National Enquirer was on top of all the scientific findings. So you really think King Tut died in a plane crash 20,000 years I, ago? I think King T I think Elvis is alive, and I think, uh, what is it, uh, spacecraft have landed and are, are, are controlling the population as we speak. No, man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you want to learn about controlling their pain... Go to uh, the recent issue of the Technology Review... All right, Frank, so do you like hedging your bets? Hedging my bets? Uh, I think I bet on the house. You bet on the house? Yeah. House always wins. Of course. What about the roosters? Do the roosters always win? I think they just crow. <laughs> they, they certainly do crow, and they certainly hedge their bets, it turns out. Really? What does that mean? Well, it turns out that males of the species Gallus gallus are hardly very gallant, in fact. Hardly gallant. Yes, and in fact, what they do is they hedge their bets when uh, mating with uh, uh, the female members of the species. Huh, how does that work? 
Well, so it turns out that roosters uh, have to uh, in- inseminate several females in order to get one pregnant, right? It's really? Sort of, yeah, it's just sort of a uh, process where... I mean, probability? It's a probability thing where the rooster may or may not get pregnant or, or the, the hen may or may not get pregnant. So the rooster basically has to go around and try and inseminate as many females as possible. Mm-hmm. And if it if it doesn't succeed, then uh, that's bad and for the species. Right. <laughs> but the question is, you know, uh, it's kind of costly and time-consuming to actually go around trying to inseminate all these hens. Right. And what researchers were wondering were... Do some of the roosters actually hedge their bets by inseminating more in some hens than others? This must be like a process of evolution or, or selection, right? Yeah, essentially. And uh, But what they found out is that it actually seems to be involved with the number of actual other competitors around. Huh. So it must be like some male response behavior, some sort of aggression where they're competing for each other or against each other. Essentially, yeah. And uh, it, it's directly related just to how many uh, how many other roosters there are. So, I don't know. I've, I, I'm not sure if this really applies to humans or not. but <laughs> an interesting uh, finding, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, men are from Mars and women are not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if people want to find out about this, it's in the favorite journal, Nature. All right. And I guess that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Herb Carter... Grace Lee and Laura Araujo will join us to tell us about the Siemens Westinghouse Science Competition. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, top teen scientists squared off this past weekend on the UC Berkeley campus in the prestigious Siemens-Westinghouse competition in math, science, and technology. The Western Regional Finals brought students from as far as New York to show their science medal and compete for awards and scholarships. We're fortunate to talk with some of these students and organizers about this competition. And joining us in the studio is Mr. Herb Carter, Executive Vice President of the Siemens Foundation. Grace Lee from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and Laura Arahujo from New York. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Well, it's certainly a pleasure for us to have you on the program. Uh, perhaps we'll start with you, Mr. Carter. Uh, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about this program. I think many of our listeners might be familiar with the previous Westinghouse Science Town Search. I'm curious if you can tell us about this program and what its purpose is and maybe how it's a little different from the previous Westinghouse Science Town Search. In 1998, Siemens, which is one of the largest companies in the world, in fact, we have about 400,000 employees worldwide and about 70,000 employees here in the United States, uh, Siemens uh, bought the Westinghouse Power Division. 
and at the time we purchased Westinghouse, we thought we may have rights to the old Westinghouse program. Subsequently, we found out we did not have the rights to the program and that the program was really owned by Science Services, and they owned the program called the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. Westinghouse really funded the program. Uh, science services on the program. The program went out to bid, and since we did not win the bid, mm -hmm. uh, we elected to start a program similar to that program. Now, as I will tell you, that Intel now have the Intel Science Talent Search, which means they won the bid. Now, the difference between their program and the Siemens Westinghouse program is fundamentally we have both individual and team competitions, and in the old Westinghouse program, they only have the individual competition. We believe that teams are very, very important in the area of research, mm -hmm. and since all these kids are doing the original research, and hopefully that's, they will continue in that vein, we believe we ought to emphasize team research as well. The other difference is fundamentally uh, we have regional competitions as we are having here this weekend, and the old Westinghouse program only had one national competition. We've identified six regions across the country, mm -hmm. and we have six prestigious universities that host these regional competitions. We have MIT in the Northeast. We have Carnegie Mellon in the Mid-Atlantic States. We have Georgia Tech in the South. We have University of Texas at Austin in the Southwest. We have Notre Dame in the Midwest, mm -hmm. and we have UC Berkeley here on the West Coast. Yeah. So the next three weeks, we will be hosting these competitions. Berkeley will be hosting the Western Regional Competitions, and the winner mm -hmm. from this competition will get $3,000 scholarships, and all the other kids will get the runner-up prize of $1,000. But the winners, however, will also go on to the national competition, and at the national competition, they will have the opportunity to win anywhere between $10,000 and $100,000. That is both individuals and team competition. I see. And so do they, do they actually compete uh, in some science competition at the, thing, at the actual event, or is it a science research project that they've completed beforehand? Well, and to be quite honest with you, you take, for example, uh, the team that we have here with us today. They did their summer research at Michigan State University, mm -hmm. and they compiled that, that research and put it together, and they applied it to compete in this competition. So you will have kids that did some independent work, mm -hmm. some that went to uh, universities like Michigan State for a summer math or science program, mm -hmm. and then you will have kids that attend math and science high schools. They are required to do research in those high schools, mm -hmm. and they bring their research projects. So it can come from a variety of different uh, means. I noticed that uh, so the Western Region Finals are here in, uh, at Berkeley, but there are students from as far away as New York. So how are the regions determined in this competition? That's pretty interesting. What we try to do is to locate as many individuals as possible within their home okay. uh, Western Regional State, so to speak. Now, if you take a look at our individuals, since we have a huge number uh -huh. of individuals, it's very easy for us to identify all of the winners for a particular region in right. that particular region. When it comes down to teams, historically team competitions have not had a lot of participation. So you don't get the number, and therefore you have to divide it up in a balanced sense mm -hmm. and then distribute it across your other regions. So that's why you have some from the different regions. Well, it's quite fascinating. So maybe we should, we should uh, chat with some of the, uh, the students. Uh, we have two of the students who have uh, competed in this competition, uh, Grace Lee and Laura Arahuo. And uh, were you both uh, teammates in this uh, competition? Yes. And how did you both uh, meet, uh, since you're one's from Michigan and one's from uh, New York? Um, we went to Michigan State University for the high school honors science program, um, directed by Dr. Gail Richmond in Michigan. We both applied. What happened is that we were given like a list of projects, and we choose from it, and we rank them, and like and which ones we prefer. And then I guess the director of the program she pairs up um, who she believes like she just pairs up the best she can on what projects she like the most. 
And uh, so how did, how did both of you uh, initially become in, involved or interested in uh, competing maybe in science or just in science in general? Uh, start with Greg. Um, well, I've always been interested in science. When I was younger, I wanted to become a doctor, so I went to many science programs and ended up at MSU. Um, mine was part of a science research program in school I took part in. In order to complete the class or to pass the class, you had to complete a summer of science research, so I applied for the Michigan State University Science Program. So what, what's the actual project, and uh, what, did, what did you do? Our project, we were trying to find out the effects of carbon dioxide on the foraging behavior of honeybees and um, also the effects of carbon dioxide on their juvenile hormone levels. And uh, how did you actually go about uh, measuring this and uh, looking at the uh, particular effects? Um, we had a professor, Dr. Zachary Wong, in Michigan State University. Um, he was doing a pro he was doing the study on it, and he allowed us to come in and help him. Um, first, what we did, you know, we bled the bees, like actually poked holes in them and like took out their blood. Um, we observed them like for an hour a day, watching them fly in and fly out. We had to tag them to keep track of them. And then after that, like the chemistry aspect was all done in a machine, really. That's quite fascinating. So how do you how do you actually tag small bees there? Well, you have to pick them up with your fingers, um, at the thorax, and then you have to make sure their abdomen is perpendicular to your fingers so they won't be able to sting you. And then you take glue and li little tags that are made in Germany, and you basically glue them onto their thorax. Are these like little radio emitting devices, or what are they? No, they're just colored tags oh. with numbers on them. Yeah, little pieces of plastic. Uh -huh. So what actually did you find out from uh, your, your investigations of carbon dioxide in bees? What was the, the, the interesting result? We found out that carbon dioxide actually did increase the JH titers for, from the first four to five days, and it also induced early foraging behavior in the honeybees. What's the JH titer? Um, it's the amount of juvenile hormone in the blood. After having completed this uh, project and uh, gotten a taste of what uh, research is like, do you feel like you're willing or interested in going on and continuing in, uh, in the research science field? Um, me, myself, um, I'm not exactly sure about that. I mean, I liked it a lot. I enjoyed doing it, but I don't know if I would pursue science. I really enjoyed it, and I think I'll probably be going to some field of research. I guess my question then is, uh, so what, what do you see, I guess, as, uh, as your futures then uh, following this, and uh, how do you think, I guess, this has uh, affected your your uh, your your path, perhaps. Um, it's definitely opened my eyes of like opportunities you could do in research. I mean, there's more to research than just like taking part of the project. I mean, um, when we were there, we saw that there are students that did this as part-time volunteer or even as internships. So there's a lot of job opportunities there. Um, also, like just the experience of just doing research, even if I don't intend to pursue it as I get older, I think like the experience was very well. I learned a lot about working with people, working in teams, you know, and taking direction from like professors and stuff like that. I think this has um, this experience has showed me that I do want to go into research rather than become a doctor. Wow, well that's uh, that's really I guess uh, something to be uh, something to be uh, at least good to find out when you're young, uh, and uh, certainly must be a good uh, sign for the program itself. Uh, well, it looks like we are running a little short on time, but uh, maybe we could just wrap up and uh, ask. Uh, so, is the Siemens Foundation going to continue to sponsor this program, and do they have uh, ideas for 
maybe other types of programs uh, uh, in the works for increasing science education? Yeah, well, this is one of our signature programs. We have another signature program, which is the Siemens Awards for Advanced Placement. We recognize students, teachers, and high schools that do exemplary performance in the Advanced Placement Program. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of fellowship programs for the kids that attend camps, like the one at Michigan State, so mm -hmm. we provide funds for that. But our real, real goal is to encourage and motivate young high school kids in getting involved in math, science, and engineering type courses. Mm -hmm. We believe that it's very, very important for developing the skills sets that we're going to need for tomorrow, and we're hopeful that we can walk into high schools one day and see as many trophies for math and science as you find now for basketball, football, and baseball. Oh, well, that would certainly be a, a great goal to have. Well, I just want to thank you all very much for joining us today on uh, Berkeley Grox, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy your visit here at, at Berkeley. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Charles. And we were just talking to Herb Carter, the executive vice president of the Siemens Foundation, and two of the contestants on the Siemens Westinghouse Science Search. Ms. Grace Lee from Mount Pleasant High School in Missouri and Ms. Laura Arahuo from Memphis High School in New York. And for those high school educators out there who are interested in the competition, you can contact the Siemens Foundation. Uh, their phone number is 1-877-822-5233 or you can also email them at foundation at sc.siemens S-I-E-M-E-N-S dot -E -E com. This is Berkeley Grocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Jimmy Lin will join us to talk about backing up your data. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. This week's tech update, we're going to talk about backing up. That's right, back up early, back up often. And joining us again in the studio is Jimmy Lin. Jimmy? Thanks, Frank. So, you know, backing up your data is something we all know we should do, but none yeah. of us do it nearly often enough. Right. And I think, especially these days, more and more people are putting, you know, their music on their computers and their pictures on their computers. And if your hard drive crashes and that's your only copy, you know, it can be even more devastating than before. Yeah, because all the time you lose that's all right. the data you put in there. Right, and all the memories, it's as if, you know, someone took your entire CD collection and, and, and uh, photo albums and threw them into the fire, right? <laughs> so it becomes even more important now to back up your data. And, you know, in the old days, 
people would use floppy disks to pack yeah. up their data. Yeah. But even in the old days, backing up with floppies was a pain because you had to use so many floppies. Mm-hmm. Each floppy could hold maybe one and a half megabytes. Your your hard drive would be twenty or thirty megabytes back then. So mm-hmm. you know you do the math. There was also um, tape drives for those okay. who were really um, serious about backing up their data. Right. And you know they're somewhat more expensive. They have moving parts. You know the tapes are not that cheap. Right. But the good thing is that they were very, very high capacity. Okay. And so you would only need maybe one tape instead of ten floppies. Right. But you know even um, even those got to be too much of a pain. And these days it's very hard to find tape drives available mm-hmm. for um, backups for consumers. Mm-hmm. Businesses still use them. But it's not really available for consumers. Right. And so these days there are a couple of um, options. You can use um, you can use a CD burner. Okay. And so you can burn you know CDRs or CDRWs. Right. So CDRs those discs you can write once but read many times. Right. CDRWs essentially act as a really big floppy. You can read okay. and write as many times as you want. Mm-hmm. And those are good for transporting lots of large files. Right. But um, they hold about 550 megabytes. And okay. these days, hard drives are 20 gigabytes, 30 gigabytes, 100 80, gigabytes. 100 gigabytes. And so even those have become too small. Uh-huh. And you really want to avoid the need to swap disks because the more inconvenient it is to back up your hard drive each time, the less likely you are to do it. Right. Um, another option is uh, writing your own DVD. Okay. DVDs are 4.7 gigabyte. Right. And so even though that's too small for, you know, a 20 gigabyte hard drive, it will probably be quite a quite enough for a lot of your data. Right. But one of the challenges there is that there turns out to be many formats for DVDs. There, yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, there are two write once, read many formats, uh-huh. DVD plus R and DVD minus R, and then there are two rewritable formats, DVD plus RW and DVD minus RW. Uh-huh. And so, you know, which format do you use? What type of drive do you have? Will it be readable on someone else's DVD drive? And so that's still playing itself out. Okay. And then finally, there's the option that is the most expensive, but it's the fastest, and it's actually becoming more reasonable these days, mm-hmm. which is having another hard drive. A portable hard drive? Having a portable hard drive. Uh-huh. And, you know, these days you can get an 80 gigabyte external hard drive for about $170. Right. Or 120 gig hard drive for $220, which turns out to be roughly 80 to $100 more than an internal hard drive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the good thing is you only have to, you don't have to worry about swapping media. You okay. just You can just Typically, the software that comes with it is often pretty easy to use. You can just press one button, and that backs up your whole hard drive. Right. It's it becomes much less hassle. And so, if you look f- if you're looking for an external hard drive to back up your data, mm-hmm. you should um, the connection type should be either a high speed USB 2.0 uh-huh. or a FireWire hard drive. Right. And um, with those devices, the transfer rates tend to be about 400 megabits per second. Okay. Some of the faster fire wires are 800 megabits per second. Right. And you know, to give you an idea of how fast that is, 
you know, your your high-speed cable modem or DSL is 1.5 megabits per second, if you're lucky. Wow. So we're talking really fast, yeah. which is really critical for backing up such a large amount of data. Wow. And so ideally, you would want to do an incremental backup every day. Mm-hmm. So an incremental backup only copies over the data that's been changed that day. Okay. And then a full backup every week. Right. Um, and it sounds like a pain, but there, like I said, there is software that comes with that often comes with these uh, media mm-hmm. that can help automate the process. Jimmy, thanks a lot for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you. Okay, and now here's the total kit with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the largest planet in the solar system? Well, it is not the planet X. It is uh, Jupiter, the big red planet, two more away from the Earth. Well, yee! Gal, thank you very much there, Mr. Tokyo Kid. Hey, that's just pretty dang crazy. You know, the Jupiter has a huge, huge planet. Hell, well, you know, I'm walking around and I'm going, you know, there's a lot of a lot of cacti around here, but not a lot of waterfalls. And But there's one big waterfall that's way out there in Venezuela. It's called the Angel Falls. Well, I was curious, who the heck discovered the Angel Falls? Well, you know, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us at groxedhotmail.com. You're not going to win anything. Oh, howdy! You just might be a little wetter. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at groxedhotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with Katie.